Welcome to another Constitutional Futures podcast from the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law. Our focus today is on the referendum processes linked to constitutional change on the island of Ireland and the Belfast Good Friday Agreement linked into the broader theme of thinking about constitutional futures across these islands. Really delighted to be joined by two leading experts and contributors to this constitutional conversation. Aoife O'Donoghue is a Professor of International Law and Global Governance at Durham University Law School and I'm really delighted to say we'll be joining Queen's in May. Aoife's research centres on questions of governance, constitutionalism, utopia and feminism. Aoife is a co-director of the Northern Dash Ireland Feminist Constitutions Project which lays the basis for new interventions in feminist constitutional drafting and design. She was co-director of the Northern Ireland Feminist Judgments Project and also works on the implications of Brexit for Northern Ireland. Colin Murray has taught constitutional law and counter-terrorism law at Newcastle Law School for over 15 years. His research spans these subjects, encompassing prisoner disenfranchisement and the right to vote, imperialism's impact on the UK constitution and the human rights implications of special counter-terrorism powers, his ongoing research explores the implications of Brexit for Northern Ireland and culminated in him running a major ESRC, Economic Social Research Council, project on governance and identity in Northern Ireland amid the negotiation of the UK, EU-UK Withdrawal Agreement and Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the, the Performing Identities Projects, which will be very well known to, to many of our listeners. So thank you both so much for joining the Constitutional Futures podcast uh, today. There's a very strong focus at the moment on the Good Friday Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement framework for discussions around referendums on constitutional change. But I suppose a question I want to start with today is what you believe this in fact means in precise terms for these purposes. Major focus on the Good Friday Agreement framework, but what does that actually mean? Uh, Aoife. Thanks, um, Colin, and thanks very much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really pleased, really pleased to be here. Um, so I think that's a really interesting question. I suppose for me, it means you're not starting from, you know, ideas of parliamentary sovereignty or anything in the Irish constitution either. You're starting from a different framework that's ba- that is Northern Ireland specific and based. And I think that's important. And obviously there is a kind of a basic infrastructure there and an acceptance of the possibilities of constitutional change as a legitimate discussion. And I suppose coming from an international lawyer's perspective, uh, an acceptance of an idea of internal self-determination, so devolution as we are, but also, you know, the what remaining in the UK might mean, but also what creating a new polity might mean. Um, from a feminist perspective, I would say perhaps that one of the downsides of it being so infirmly entrenched is that it's all wrapped up of what we would say in international law is a Westphalian state solution. So it's a, you know, the sort of state is a state and creating a new state or breaking away from a state or joining up with another state are the set solutions. Um, and I suppose also from a feminist perspective, I sort of what... I'm interested in what questions then are forefronted and perhaps then what questions aren't forefronted. And, you know, there's been plenty of, of really interesting research done 
on the role of women in in negotiating the settlement, but also in what happened afterwards, the kind of absences of women from the framework, the absence of of women from representation, and not just women, say members of the traveller community as well, and the new Irish. Um, so for me, it's important to ask also what it, it the questions it doesn't ask and who it doesn't forefront. Also, I think it has allowed partially for a narrative to present to be presented. That means that. You can present the options as somehow politically neutral or purely procedural. But for me, the 1998 agreement is a it's, it was a political negotiation, as is all law. I don't think this is very particular to 1998, but that it's a result of political negotiation. And therefore, nothing is purely procedural or purely neutral. They, you know, everything that's in it is 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 politically contingent um, and therefore, you know, has to be seen to seen from that. That's great. Thank you very much, Chief. Colin, the Good Friday Agreement framework. What do you think that means for these purposes? I suppose, yeah. Just to follow on from what Aretha was saying, it's a break from the idea of parliamentary sovereignty as being the the pole star for Northern Ireland's constitutional order. Instead, you've got to ground all of these questions in the 1998 agreement, and it becomes the foundation stone upon which Northern Ireland's continuing existence um, happens and what would happen if we were to move away from having Northern Ireland. It's Those are the questions that are bound up within the agreement. And that's really important because it gives us a touchstone that we can rely on and we can find some key things out on if it comes to holding a referendum on, well, what's euphemistically called the constitutional question. Um, So if you go to Article 1 of the UK-Ireland part of the 1998 agreement, you get a series of sub-articles and they flesh out this idea of um, a process that rests with the people of Northern Ireland and the people of Ireland. These articles talk about... Um, consent freely given uh, in a concurrent process to constitutional change. They also talk about the idea of um, the importance of a majority of people in Northern Ireland backing constitutional change, so backing unity. Now, all of that, as Aoife says, is highly politically contingent. If you like, you're taking a scant few hundred words and we're being asked almost to spin out what will the process look like from it. And it might all sound, as Aoife said superficially, oh, that makes sense and that's neutral. But of course, there's lots that can be unpacked in that. And there have been lots of attempts to unpack, well, what does a majority mean in the context of Northern Ireland or who gets the vote? In these questions, who who make up the people of Northern Ireland? Would a special franchise be necessary? So you almost get into that zone of what's often talked about in the context of the 1998 agreement as being constructive ambiguity. What's there on paper and what's the penumbra around that? How might the words in that be manipulated or be just subject to different interpretations? And how might that affect the process of trying to hold a referendum on unity? So I think if you go to the agreement, you get these uh, these touchstone words, this idea of 
free consent, this idea of concurrent processes, this idea of a majority process. But then I think a lot of the challenge has been, and particularly in recent years, as constitutional lawyers have turned to consider these questions, has been to actually try to encapsulate what these terms mean in practice and how they might be turned into a legal process for achieving a referendum on unity. Thank you. And it really leads on to the next uh, question, which is there's one of the fascinating aspects of the process is the, the role that is given to the Secretary of State uh, in terms of triggering or starting or initiating a referendum in, in Northern Ireland and the implications that that, that potentially has for the, the whole island. And there's been some discussion recently about providing more clarity around that. And we've seen, you know, the McCord judgment and the scale and extent of flexibility. Just wondered what your view was. Would it be helpful for the British government, the Secretary of State, to provide more detail and clarity on when a referendum might be called and the sort of evidence that she or he would take into account in, in making that decision? Colin? I can see the attraction in getting a lot more certainty around this. And I suppose my biggest fear is that we're over 20 years too late in doing this. And in certain regards, this was a ball that was dropped in 1998. And I think there was an expectation in 1998 that Secretaries of State for Northern Ireland would would act like Momolum or even Mayhew, her predecessor, that there was an idea of the seriousness of the concept of no selfish or strategic interest. Um, there was a conception around rigorous impartiality. And over recent years, all of that is frayed under the pressure of Brexit and under a UK government that's quite closely related itself to particular parties in the Northern Ireland process. So as soon as you have that dynamic, well then, well, what is sometimes called the good chaps approach to the UK constitutional order begins to break down. Now, again, you go back to the 1998 agreement, you go to the Northern Ireland Act that followed it, and Northern Ireland's constitutional order doesn't subscribe to, we'll just trust that everyone is going to be proper with regard to their role and be a good chap in how the constitution plays out. We highly legalise a ministerial code and the rules for um, how the executive works in the Northern Ireland context. But the same expectations are looser generally when it comes to the UK government. And what we're left to rely on is that commitment in the agreement to rigorous impartiality in dealings on these questions. And almost following on from the McCord judgment, when a Secretary of State might be acting unreasonably with regard to the evidence base that would trigger the specific duty to call a referendum, if that evidence base um, suggests that there's a majority will for constitutional change in Northern Ireland. Now, I would like to think that even 
in the current, well, fraught position of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and often yeah, instrumentalised and sometimes quite divisive role that recent Secretaries of State have played, there is still in that idea of rigorous impartiality something that is so embedded within the idea of the Northern Ireland governance order that as soon as any convincing evidence or any um, any evidence that's credible that speaks towards a majority will for constitutional change, that the Secretary of State at that point would have to either call the referendum or immediately and clearly set out why this doesn't meet the threshold that they think is necessary for calling a referendum, or else Northern Ireland simply isn't governable. You go back to that touchstone of a constitutional order, and it's based on ideas like rigorous impartiality. And as soon as the Secretary of State did something that obviously departed from that on a question as fundamental as the will of the people of Northern Ireland towards constitutional change, well, then you knock out the foundation stone on which on, on which we've built current governance and cooperation in the Northern Ireland context. Thank you, Colin. Aoife, do you think it's surprising that the Secretary of State has this, uh, the centrality, really, of the role in this? I suppose in the context of the time when they were deciding it, I, I suppose it... it, it isn't unsurprising in the context of a UK constitutional order um, where secretaries of state, no matter what area you're talking about, tend to have a huge amount of power and the executive tends to as well. So I suppose in that specific context, from an, I would say, an international law self-determination perspective, it probably is quite surprising um, that you would lay it almost entirely within sort of the, the state that would potentially be broken up power to, to make the decision. Um, though it's there's very little actual sort of binding practice in international law on this. So international law is really of limited help in sort of giving you guidance on absolutely what should happen. Um, and I think that the word helpful is useful here in the, in the question about, you know, what, what being helpful means and who it would be helpful, like for whom would it be helpful if the Secretary of State laid it out. And I think and this kind of builds on what Colin was saying, that, you know, because of the way UK constitutionalism works, there would be a very big question about whether or not what one secretary of state says will bind the next secretary of state, even within a government. But certainly if there was a, a shift in government or a new parliament, whether or not they would be legally bound. And they, they're probably not. Um, and then, of course, you probably lead to, you know, more McCord cases and uh, more litigation on it. But I, I do think there is th that shouldn't lead into some of the way that other debates have gone about how a, a majority wouldn't be sufficient. And it would have to be more than that before you would have the poll, because I think the the, the difficulties on assessing are different to the creating a different threshold, which I know some of the discussions have gone, um, because I think what might be more helpful might be for the Secretary of State and, and the work myself and Colin have done together, uh, we kind of touch on this, is that they set out how they would determine it. So would it be, you know, like what statistics were they actually going to rely on? Would they bring in an outside independent 
body, if, if there was a poll released by a newspaper, would they follow that up then with a different way of, of collating the information? Would they rely on the census and combination? I think perhaps it might be more useful to set out the evidence base um, on how they would collect the evidence rather than sort of setting out a kind of set uh, a, a series of tipping points um, for this would happen once this, you know, X happens, once Y has been achieved. Um, so I, I, I think around that sort of, while I've, I've talk, critiqued reliance on procedure, but a sort of of who exactly, you know, what the, that evidence would be collected might be a more useful way, particularly, I think, given what the use of various Brexit statistics, particularly around the protocol, the way that those statistics have been manipulated and used to suggest, or even various statistics on, on whether or not um, uh, we're reaching a point where there is a majority who would like to have a poll on the future of Northern Ireland. So I think perhaps the, that evidence base might be more helpful than simply because the UK constitutional order doesn't lend itself to that sort of Secretary of State-led certainty. Um, I suppose they could go further. They could introduce an act. They could do something else to bind the Secretary of State. But parliamentary sovereignty, of course, means that everything can always be be overturned in that context. Just to, to follow on from that, really, Aoife and... Uh... One of the, again, another intriguing debate around the wording of the agreement and the right to self-determination is this question around concurrent consent that's referred to in the agreement itself. And there is a bit of discussion about what that means. For example, whether it requires simultaneous referendums on the island, for example, on the, the same day. I just wonder what your view on that was. Um, maybe Aoife, what are your thoughts on that? What does concurrent consent mean for the purposes of, of this process? Well, uh, myself and Colin have worked through a few models on on what, how or why it might work. But the, I mean, I think, I mean, theoretically, I think you could read into it that they don't have to happen on the same times. I think you, you theoretically could make that argument. But what I would say to that is that if the ultimate decision was to create a new polity on the island. I think that's something that collectively has to be made at the same time. So while theoretically, sure, you could read the agreement to say they don't have to be on the same date, it is a collective decision. And if it's happening, this for me is, is a question around consent. Um, and from, you know, the idea of consent and the exercise of, of something like constituent power to create a new polity has to be that entire polity together doing that or deciding not to as well, you know, to, to exercise your constituent power to decide, no, I don't want a new polity. I think both of those are really important. And I think doing that collectively would be an important form of a way of thinking or 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 creating a legitimacy. I think if you if you put one after the other, you're in some ways the way one vote goes or the other vote goes in, will influence the polity and you know they're, they're the other polity in the way it might vote. So I, I do think it's important to think about the potential of creating a new polity and doing that collectively. Um, now that doesn't mean you don't you could have multiple votes that are you know on other elements of it as well. But I think when it comes to that key question, I think concurrent for me means it has to be at the same time. I would also say on on 
that idea of consenting to the creation of a new polity or consenting to the creation of, say, a, a new United Kingdom with the you know idea of Northern Ireland as as part of a, a, a refreshed exercise of self-determination to remain. Um, that as a feminist, uh, there is a very specific relationship with self-determination and feminist ideas of constitutional change, which is very much at odds with kind of abrasive or elite-driven referenda, where the models of, say, some of citizens' assemblies, for instance, as much as it's lauded and is very interesting, it doesn't really shift away all that much from elites. It's still elites advising. It's still elites setting the questions. It's still elites setting the genders. Um, and there's, you know, uh, Eilish Rooney and Fidel Mash are involved in projects uh, that, um, and as well as ourselves in the Feminist Constitution projects, around having conversations about the nature of constitutional change and what it could or should mean. Um and that if concurrent means at the same time, um, that there has to at least be that sort of collective idea of beginning and collective idea of ending and collective idea of continuing story for the island and the polity and the two islands you know, together, the collective um, kind of Atlantic archipelago. That this is a, a long conversation of what's needed and what's wanted, and that that's okay. That while you may have those, you know, that concurrent consent in the referendum on the same day, that doesn't mean the bigger, longer conversations and the real deep conversations that really need to be had shouldn't be had. I also think it's useful to think about the different ways maybe you might what you'd be asking um, and how you might be going about asking. Um, and I suppose from the Republic's perspective and the sort of, you know, multiple constitutional referendums, that maybe it mightn't be useful to have a constitutional referendum. Myself and Colin have talked that, about that in our articles that you could, you know, Ireland has used contingent constitutional referenda with regard to the 1998 agreement. You could use that. Um, you could also have a, like a non-constitutional together referenda but that was still binding and I think in the UK as well sort of the different models and the different points because within the UK model you know parliamentary sovereignty always rubs up against um, democratic exercises of self-determination whether or not we're talking about Northern Ireland there Scotland or Wales um, and I think that sort of um, kind of hard abrasive yes no kind of um, idea of, of concurrent referendums, I, I don't think I wouldn't support as a, as a feminist constitutionalist. But I do, having said that, I do think it would, as a collective exercise of polity creation, it should be at the same time that the kind of core question is asked, whatever about the other questions. I think th those ones need to be asked together as a polity for it to meaningfully create a new group or meaningfully decide for the people of Northern Ireland that they wanted to stay stay within the UK. Thank you. For Colin, any thoughts on that issue of concurrent consent? Oh, it's wonderful to follow on and, and just be able to <laughs> hopefully say things briefly at uh, yeah. this point, given such a full answer of this, of how a referendum or referendums happen in the course of a broader process here. I suppose... On this particular issue, like it comes back to that idea of constructive ambiguity, and that was wonderful for getting bits of the agreement over the line in 1998. But there are elements of it that 20 plus years on, we're still trying to tease out, well, what exactly does that mean? How do we baseline this? And how might it be subject to different interpretations? But I think there can also be 
a, a search for ambiguity where I don't think very much ambiguity actually exists. And I think that's the case when it comes to concurrent referendums. Now, uh, there is an argument that can be made whereby on the strength of the agreement itself, Ireland as a polity as distinct from Northern Ireland doesn't need to have a referendum at all. And as Aoife said, I, I, I just don't think that's credible in the context of Ireland's constitution, let alone how it's read in line with the 1998 agreement. So I think you do have to have, or as a matter of practice, two referendums. And then once you make that practical decision, well, then you need to be guided by the agreement when it talks about consent freely and concurrently given in Article 1, Paragraph 2. And as soon as you hold referendums on what Aoife says, and this is just the core question of unity, as soon as you hold them at different times, well, then the idea of consent freely given starts to, well, it's, it's eroded by that division because it's now consent given against a backdrop or against a context. Here's what the other polity involved in this thinks. And I think for that exercise, if we're to say as Democrats that this is important, well, then I think you can set constructive ambiguity to one side for a moment and we can take this wording in the context of an international treaty as it is and read it, I think, as it's clearly intended. As soon as you set up for a dual referendum process, they would have to, on that core question, take, pla or or take place on the same day. And th thank you, Colin. And again, just um, related to, to that, there's there's been a recurring theme in this debate around planning and preparation, and it's, you know, repeated very, very often. But I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how much planning might in fact be possible in principle and practice before these referendums take place. Uh, or are there things that that we'll need to wait till afterwards? So a lot of focus on advanced planning and people constantly refer to the experience of Brexit when they talk about that. But I wonder, are there things that need to happen before or are there some things that, that, that can only really happen after these votes take place? Um, Colin? Yeah, it's a really good question as to how do we lead into this and what do we need to think about to... Uh, to even make real the concept of a free choice over the future of, of Northern Ireland as a polity and whether it remains part of the United Kingdom or whether there is unity. Now, there are some things that absolutely have to happen as part of a planning process, a bare minimum that would take in questions of, say, what the franchise is going to be, because the Northern Ireland Act 1998 provisions that were flagged in the agreement and then became part of the statute give scope for a special franchise. Now, if there is a special franchise, there's got to be a, a considerable amount of planning around that idea of a special fr franchise and time to put it in place. Now, that is definitely at the procedural end of a spectrum, but if you're going to make democracy work, that needs to be a robust process and that will take time for the electoral authorities in Ireland and Northern Ireland to work out what that means and work out what it means to have concurrent referendums on that basis. Would you have to 
align um, who gets the vote in each of those polities. So all of that will take time. And uh, that time probably allows a space to usefully reflect upon what is going to be the shape of a polity that's being put to the people of Ireland and the people of Northern Ireland. If you like, there's a down and dirty model of a referendum that just says, well, once you have this in place, you put a question to uh, the people and they'll get to decide. And that's very much, I think, where people reflecting upon Brexit and the vote in June 2016 recoil away from that idea of, well, how could we possibly know the consequences that were flowing from this? This wasn't properly fleshed out. And there are various degrees to which you can use the space ahead of a referendum happening to usefully talk about what would a unified polity look like. I think you need to, um, for people to exercise this choice freely, have a, a decent idea of what that polity looks like. And so those debates have to happen for that choice to be meaningful. Because if it's not, if it is just a, a vote on a single sentence as to whether or not Northern Ireland should remain part of the United Kingdom or uh, be unified with Ireland, there you end up in a territory where there are too many questions as to what that involves. And too much weight can be put then on the choice of the people. What did the people actually agree to? Which is where we circle back to June 2016. What did the people agree to when they agreed to Brexit? So I think for the people's choice to be meaningful, there would have to be conversations about what the polity would thereafter look like. Now, as Aoife said in answer to the last question, those conversations could be specific in some regards and general in others. Um, it could be at a level of heads of bill, a level of uh, uh, outline constitutional documents and concepts. You could have a full-on constitutional convention across the island to flesh these things out after a vote. Or you could try to do this in advance of the vote, and then the vote becomes this is the polity that we would be constituting. And a lot of that depends on the timing of the process and the space, but simply because the Secretary of State has said that the threshold has been reached for a vote doesn't necessarily mean that the vote happens the very next day. We get into all of those questions as to what the franchise will be. And then we get into a very clear set of questions as to what's the offer that's being put to the people here. The people should have a choice and a clear choice of what they're going into as a polity. Eva, that question of advanced planning and preparation, what happens before and what happens after? Yeah, and I think it's building on, on what Colin was saying. And I think it does rather depend a lot on the good faith of all involved. And, and I mean that from intergovernmental perspective, from the perspective of the Assembly, but also uh, civil society, academics such as ourselves, um, grassroots organisations and, you know, about the advanced planning and everyone taking part in that sort of good faith way that also that gives space, for instance, for, uh, you know, 
feminist uh, unionist groups, for instance, to, to make arguments about what, you know, a feminist uh, Northern Ireland within the context of the United Kingdom might mean, that, that that all of those discussions would have to take place. And I do think that a lot of advanced planning does need to take place. And because I think from, and I would say this is my own personal feminist pers- constitutional perspective, I mean, voting on the status quo is not something I think most feminists on the island would be content with um, the constitutional orders across across the island have not um, been you know uh, in lots of ways have been quite harmful to women um, have led to quite negative outcomes um, some of that is because women were excluded from the constitutional conversations even though many tried to get involved with them um, and sort of the use the moment for genuine collective constitutional thinking, and I think that's all already going on. I mean, within you know, within feminist constitutional discussions, like we're having really rich conversations uh, involving lots of different groups thinking about what a feminist constitutional futures might look like. You know, what what would work, and that that is not necessarily bound again to that sort of Westphalian idea of you know you either have a new state or you have what we have. Um, and I think that, you know, in that sort of advanced planning and that sort of detail that Colin was talking there about, about, you know, potential heads of bill, for instance, or setting out agendas for future constitutional, you know, these these 20 issues will be tackled first, for instance, and you could, you know, pick any random 20 figures. But who gets to pick those? Who gets to draft those Heads of bill, and that's very much part of the our, our feminist constitutions project is to ask you know who gets to draft now, who gets to write the language, who gets to talk about what those will look like, how and where does that drafting take place, and that when I talk about good faith, I'm talking about that good faith collective involvement in that space where you know when it, there is an announcement that it might happen, but also right now. Because there's plenty of examples. I mean, Brexit is, is you know, the most common example that's given. But um, Gavin Riley, the Virgin Media journalist yesterday, pointed out that um, way back in 1979, uh, there was a referendum in, in the Republic and 90, over 92 percent of Irish voters voted to extend the franchise for the Shannon. Now, that's a very fundamental vote there. Right. That's about democracy. It's about a franchise. And there was a vote to change. 15,519 days later, no government, right? So this isn't a party political. No government have introduced the changes to extend that that Shannon franchise. So it's not just in with the example of Brexit that there can be bad faith. Um, there are plenty of examples of this occurring. And for me, that sort of, that is, ex- you know, not... Just simply because these were examples that happened before that we genuinely learned from them and we genuinely not only learned from people didn't know what they were voting about or that people voted and nothing happened afterwards, but also who got to determine the parameters of those conversations, who got to do the drafting of various constitutional texts. And obviously in the United Kingdom, you're talking about a very long, long, long process of constitutional creation. And and though, you know, I think they are fundamental from a... If if we if we're going to go to a point about what practice about what what we need to have in practice before we get to the referendums, I would say we need in practice for there to be that much broader and depth preparation that involves everybody and actually asks those questions about who's drafting, who's writing, who's involved, 
who's discussing um, and, and do and do it in that sort of good faith way from everybody, uh, everybody's perspective. Thank you. Ethan. That's a good call. call yeah. Yeah. Follow on. And I'm almost thinking about this um, from what Eve has just said. And in the context of, of recent referendums in the United Kingdom, um, if we take it back to the Scottish independence referendum of 2014, we have to remember that the debates around this won't, aren't necessarily about standing still. So when it comes to a campaign and an effort to talk about Northern Ireland and its constitutional future, and indeed the constitutional future of all of these islands, you can have a campaign that would say no change whatsoever. But that's not how the campaign against Scottish independence was fought in 2014. There was quite a considerable amount of constitutional change, an idea of devo max, an idea of extended devolution that was put to the people of Scotland as part of the offering um, against independence. So when we're thinking about constitutional change in this context and we're thinking about the moment of a referendum, we need to think that no matter what the result is, it is a moment of self-determination. It's a moment where the people of Northern Ireland chose to determine their constitutional future. And that doesn't necessarily mean the status quo. And I think when it comes to the conversations about about this, um, there needs to be serious uh, thought uh, from all parties as to what's being presented to the people of Northern Ireland and what they might think is desirable as a constitutional future, as a, a governance order in which we want to live and have families and, and exist. And um, the idea that this is just a debate that has to happen on one side um, that it has to be all about this is what change would look like. Well, no, I think we could have multiple conversations about what change would look like. And the people of Northern Ireland are taking a decision that whichever way it goes could have significant constitutional changes for Northern Ireland status. Well, just to push on that theme of preparation there, th thank you both very, very much. It, it really raises the question about governments and I want to move on to that now in terms of governments and whether they're doing enough, given the context that we've explored and sketched here. For example, is the Irish government doing enough? We've seen uh, recommendations around the establishment of, for example, a citizen's assembly or more than one assembly. Uh, the government has established, Irish government, a shared island unit and there are a variety of shared island initiatives now. But I suppose it raises the bigger question about the role of both governments in preparing for all this. Uh, and also even the question about whether the EU has a role in it as well. So I just wonder what your thoughts are on governmental preparation, whether enough is being done at the moment and what more they could do. Uh, Aoife? So I, th I think there's a mixed bag here um, of what politicians are doing and I think there's probably part of it is down to what and politicians actually want to happen um, and you know why they want to maybe not have the conversation or, or have the conversation and I think that there is a that is leading to a sort of a mixed bag of um, of outcomes and um, 
I also think from the Republic's perspective, there is a, a slight sort of a superiority about uh, referendums following on from Brexit that, you know, the Republic knows how to do referendums. It does citizen assemblies. It you know, has lots of rules around the media and has a referendum commission. Um, but what I would say is that it's it's far from a perfect model. Um, there is not one way of doing it. And I think that's why both governments need to be involved in this conversation and, and talking to other states that have done this, you know, talking to Germany, talking to states that have broken up, uh, like the Czech Republic and Slovakia, you know, having those discussions with others to think about what you might be doing. Um, and with citizens' assemblies, I think they can be, you know, they can be very useful. But I would say, again, I've mentioned this already, I think as a feminist, I do, you know, I wouldn't have... It, the one on abortion may have come out with the answer that I prefer as a feminist, but it could equally not have. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, I wouldn't say that citizen assemblies are necessarily uh, a feminist way of doing things in the way that they currently operate. Though I do think they are interesting and they serve a certain purpose, but I, I don't think they serve an ultimate purpose. I would also say that governments absolutely need to facilitate um, a broader and deeper conversation, um, ones that go well beyond the SNO that we've already been talking about. I mean, what, and especially those groups that have always been excluded from political discourse. And obviously, I'm talking about women here, but also like travelers. You know, what would travelers, you know, uh, move across that border all the time? They move into Britain all the time. They, you know, they've lots of links across. You know, what do they have to say? about what it, what it might look like. Um, you know, our questions around, say, confederation, how, how does that work? Um, how would cooperation, you know, how would the UK see itself afterward? You know, and it's setting out or just having a think about what it would set it up afterwards, about making a, you know, a case for the union or in the case where Northern Ireland votes uh, to, to, to join with the Republic, you know, what, what the UK would see its role in that instance. Um, and sort of those deep questions about what like what a, a feminist union or a feminist new polity in Ireland might look like, you know, would you focus on healthcare, for instance, which has been because of the constitutional structures on the island, healthcare and women's access to healthcare has been a fundamental part of our, of how we have lived as citizens and how we've interacted with the state as, as citizens. And I mean, both states in that point. So I think facilitating and hearing those questions. As regards to the European Union, I think I mean, it's inevitable, really. I think that they would have a role. Um, they did in, in Germany, for instance, um, and they've already already said that Northern Ireland would automatically um, be a member like East Germany was. Um, what kind of role and what kind of support um, I think would be important because I think there's others as well, obviously the United States, but also those other countries that have had experiences of, of coming together, but also of breaking apart. Um, you know, how has that worked? What what are the missing conversations that we could find out are missing or find out are absent by talking to other states uh, that have been, had done that? Um, and I think that that's sort of one of the issues that could have, you know, setting out a set of kind of questions around those, because you could have very conservative interpretations if it is the preparation is entirely government led or entirely, entirely EU-led, um, you, know, you can lead to very 
technical conservative interpretations of things. I mean, at the moment in the Republic, the Attorney General is becoming very famous for claiming that the Constitution says no to absolutely everything, no matter what's being asked. Apparently, the Constitution says no. So I think we have to be careful about the direction and who does the preparation. Not that anyone should be excluded, but that we include more and we give equal value to what these various groups have to say and that the governments facilitate that. Um, you know, because there are questions and, you know, these are the sort of things that we're thinking about in our project about, you know, who sets the agenda? You know, how does the agenda get set? How does the discussion and decision making about co-authorship, about editing and rewriting and adoption and implementation and development? And everyone needs to think about that and be facilitated to have those kinds of, of conversations. So I absolutely do think they have to be involved talking to each other talking to the groups, but also facilitating groups to perhaps come up with answers that they the governments do not want to hear, you know, to come up with solutions that those governments do not want to hear. Um, and I think that's an important thing to facilitate. And it's probably the hardest thing for any government to actually do um, to facilitate those kind of discussions and to take them seriously, especially when they come out with answers you, you don't want to hear. Thank you. It's a great point. Uh, Colin, that question of governmental preparation and whether, for example, the Irish government is doing enough. Well, yeah, it's easy to say, is the Irish government doing enough when it it can be compared to nothing being done on the UK government's perspective? And so anything more than nothing, um, you could say, is enough or is surely preferable. And I suppose for me... This issue goes back to uh, two points. It goes back to the Northern Ireland Assembly um, consent motion for the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act, um, so the ratification of the Brexit deal, and that vote being across the board. Nationalists, unionists, uh, people of neither designation in the Assembly being universally unsatisfied by these outcomes and the impact of that Brexit is having in the context of Northern Ireland. Now, you go to the 1998 agreement and in rights, safeguards and equalities of opportunities, there's a non-exclusive list of rights set out there. But that non-exclusive list is supposed to say, here are the things that we say are most important. Here are the things that we think if people are able to do democratically and peacefully, that this will be beneficial to our governance order and will counteract the violent impulses that had existed over the previous three decades. And right at the centre of that is the idea of peaceful pursuit of national and political aspirations. And it seems to me painfully obvious that neither nationalists nor unionists are satisfied with the constitutional um, order as it exists in Northern Ireland. So it shouldn't just be a shared island unit from the Irish government. The UK government has a responsibility to protect those 1998 agreement rights and to facilitate these constitutional conversations. And I think at the moment in trying to paper over all of these questions, we're ending up just in a deeper state of dissatisfaction with regard to them. Thank you very, very much for those responses. Again, just to 
um, move the discussion on a bit now to you'll be delighted to hear we're on the the, the final few questions are, are, are on the podcast uh, today. There's a sense, so there seems to be a sense, um, perhaps understandably, of trepidation about entering this contested constitutional space in civic society and, and even actually in universities as well. And I want to link that to you know a, a bigger constitutional debate around constitutional change because related to that there's quite a lot of talk of a new constitution you hear the language of for example a new ireland is frequently deployed and it seems to be many people are entering the discussion because it 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 has transformative potential if you want to put it like that in areas such as equality and rights but there still appears to be that sense of or is there i suppose a question of trepidation out there about entering this contested constitutional space and just very keen to get your views on that, Colin. It's become a fraught question and it's very easy to throw the word divisiveness at the concept of constitutional change or debate on Northern Ireland's constitutional status. And again, as soon as you throw that word, you have to go back to the foundations that are in the 1998 agreement and what we agreed our society would be about after 1998. And front and centre was the idea that these conversations were not to be silenced or to be sidelined, that the idea of peaceful debate about constitutional change was to be part of the society that we advanced and we protected and cherished. Um so, yeah, uh, this surely isn't a difficult question to ask a constitutional lawyer whether you would like more constitutional debate. But if you were to put it in the same terms, the debate that's sometimes put on the protocol about uh, ending the Irish Sea border, um, if we were to just throw the word divisive at that, because it's a profound constitutional change to tear up what's there in the protocol. And whilst there can be lots of disagreement on the protocol, we're surely supposed to be in that space of debating over it and how it works. Um, I, I despair over a council that says that one set of constitutional questions are too divisive to talk about, but another set that um, one party to discussions in Northern Ireland want to see need to be foregrounded and we can talk about nothing else and it wouldn't be divisive at all to put it in those terms. If we go back over decades, you see unionist politicians like Edgar Graham engaged in debates in universities from UCC and Cork through to Oxford on questions of Irish unification. Um, you can see that active involvement in debates and you can see the horror that people who were involved in those debates were subject to the most awful political violence during the conflict in Northern Ireland. But we said in 1998 that we were now going to foreground peaceful and democratic discussion over these issues. I don't think that this is something to be seen of as divisive. I think this is something that we need to see as being cherished and being central to what Northern Ireland is as a society. Thank you, Colin. Aoife, on that question of the transformative potential of these discussions, it does seem to be 
range of people are entering this conversation for precisely those reasons. Do you, I suppose, do you think that's right? I, I do, and I, and I can I do think there is a level of of trepidation involved in sort of you know that sort of a new Ireland because for lots of reasons I don't think a new Ireland would suit lots of people, including in the Republic. So, uh, you know, I think there is, I think certain trepidation can be quite healthy, uh, acknowledging, for instance, that you you don't, a lack of knowledge um, or a sincere wish not to offend people. Um, So like in our project, we're doing values clarification workshops where, you know, people people come and they admit, you know, gaps in their understanding or or knowledge or certain prejudices they've built up uh, about, you know, particularly law uh, across the island, but other issues as well. And as a a feminist project, we're going to, you know, it's it's important to acknowledge that there are some, you know, that you should enter some spaces with a level of acknowledgement, you know, with a bit of trepidation and that that can be that hesitancy can be healthy because you also see the opposite. And you see this in a lot of, I think, in op-eds, for instance, statements made um, going both directions that are and, and about London as well, that are just I mean, they're based on actually a lack of knowledge that if people just slowed down slightly and admitted um, that they didn't know everything, we might actually be in a better position. I think the I, I would entirely agree with what what Kev, uh, Colin there is saying about um, the other type of, of stultifying conversations. And we're very good at shutting people out of conversations. Um, and in England at the moment, there is, uh, from a university perspective, uh, a new bill uh, which which um, is aimed to make free speech a bigger thing in, uh, in English campuses, but it's born of, of a different kind of divisive debate um, that's going on in England at the moment. And I think, you know, that we need to be careful about ensuring universities in particular are spaces where, yes, in, in, in sincerity and in kindness, but also the ability to openly discuss um, issues and questions because I do think that transformative potential is there and I'm very um, in other work that I, I do on on um, utopias uh, kind of the, the the use and the need of imaginative transformation of processes of what or kind of can be described as fictive learning so where you imagine something into being um, is really important you know so imagining going through the process of imagining giving space to imagining to think about it about a different constitutional idea of the island of a different type of sort of collective decision or a different kind of polity and what that could mean because I think for for many people voting for and I think um, Colin used this phrase earlier the status quo ante is is not something of interest uh, you know, it's it just to vote to just, you know, switch the border and do nothing else is not something people are particularly interested in, or vice versa. Because for me, nothing is immutable, you know, nothing is inevitable. Um, and I find claims that otherwise, you know, that constitutions have to look like this and they have to have these particular things. I think beyond democracy and rights, I'm not sure what else you absolutely have to have. But the people who claim that, you know, you have to have lots of these certain very particular things, often are the people who benefit most from the current system, even if they recognise some of the problems for the system. And I'm very much in this sort of take uh, kind of the work of Ursula K. Le Guin, the, the the science fiction writer, where she, she in a, a speech, she talked about how there would have been a period of time in, in Europe where to imagine a world without sovereign, absolute authority kings or monarchs would have been unimaginable. 
right? That the idea that, you know, you would have any other type of, of governments or constitution would have been entirely unimaginable. But we did imagine a different form of modern constitutionalism. You know, it is possible to imagine it and to create it. Um, you know, it's happening at the moment in Chile. Um, that their constitutional convention is an example where there was transfer or there is it's occurring, you know, transformative change uh, where there's coalitions of activists and artists and grassroots organizations and some academics and politicians coming together. And there are other examples like in Bolivia. So I think, you know, we can look around ourselves and be inspired by those possibilities and not fall into that sort of. Um, the form of of con- where the contestation and the divisiveness means that we're told not now is not the moment. Particularly from a feminist perspective, you know we've we've been told lots that now is not the moment to have this conversation. I think now is always the time to have these kinds of conversations. Thank you very much, Chief. You, you'll be pleased to to hear that this is the the final question today. And I've asked everybody this question, and it's a, a bit unfair, but it's an unfair question about predictions. And you'll know that a lot of the, in a lot of these discussions, there's frequent reference to the decade that we're in. And I just wondered if, if we're having this conversation in 2030, based on what we know now and what we've discussed in, in this podcast today, what do you think might have changed uh, in 2030 if we were it having this conversation It is a, a question that, uh, yeah, on. as soon as you put it to me that you were going to say it, it has me <laughs> stumped and almost slightly... Unfair horrified. question. Uh, yeah, almost slightly horrified. Um, I'm going to run with an analogy to Disney's Encanto. And this will say either um, what it is to be a tired parent in 2022 or what it is to be involved in constitutional debates about these islands um, and which of the two becomes more completely encompassing of the other or how you end up seeing one thing through the prism of the other. If anyone hasn't seen it, Encanto is about uh, a family who managed to escape political violence in Colombia um, into a magical house and a community that builds up around them. And this community, this, the magic around this house is beginning to fray and the house is in threat of collapse. And it's, for me, a straight up metaphor for a peace process and the difficulties of building a peace process and making it work in the long run. People are excluded from the family or feel that they need to be excluded. There are people for whom the process does not seem to be working at a couple of decades of remove from this hap- or from this being set up. And that's where the main story happens. Um, and now we look at the point of what we're at with the Northern Ireland Assembly and we see bills that are profoundly important before it on everything from education to climate change to adoption. All the things that you hope a governance order is able to provide as goods for the people that live subject to it. And you wish for someone like the the stern grandmother in Encanto to um, hold her hands up and say, don't worry, we can paper all over all of these cracks. The magic is still strong in a Stentonorian voice. And instead, we are living in times when people quite actively are trying to tear the house down. Um, 
And if these debates are continuing in 10 years' time, I think Aoife's point is a really good one. These debates will, will not go away. Constitutional change and the relationship between these islands will not be solved or changed in one single moment. It didn't, wasn't solved or addressed in 1998, and it certainly wasn't in 1921 or at any point before that. Um, I think we need to realise that we are in these debates for the long haul and that there needs to be an active engagement with them. There doesn't need to be a, um, a, we live in perfect times, don't worry, it'll all go away, because that's what people can see. And what's generating these debates today is a consistent feeling of constitutional crisis, is that people can see, as in, in Canto, the house falling apart or all the cracks on display. I would like to think that in the course of the next decade, we will realise that people aren't silly. People can see the problems with the governance order and we can talk about what change means in that context without it being a fundamental assault on the identity of some groups or other groups. Thank you, Colin. Um, Aoife, that exercise and prediction, what will we be talking about in 2030? Well, you know, as I've already alluded to, I'm, um, uh, I... Like the idea of you know, thinking of utopian thinking because I don't. If you don't put out the possibility of a, a utopian hinterland, you know, no one. We won't head that direction. You know, it, it's important to do that to think about you know what the best case scenario would be as a form of kind of fictive constitutional learning or fictive constitution making. So in that vein, um, I think in like by at twenty thirty, I would like to think that we're having very rich and deep discussions about what as an island we want to be and what kind of relationships we want to have across the island, across Europe, across the Atlantic world, that those discussions are broad, they're deep, that they talk about day-to-day things, you know, day-to-day access to healthcare and education, as well as those grand political tropes uh, around identities. And that we've moved on from sort of great singular constitutional moments, like, you know, Colin mentioned, you know, 1921 or uh, 1922 or 1937 or 1998 or, you know, whichever, we can go the whole way back to Magna Carta, that we move away from those kind of great 2030 isn't end state, 2040 isn't end state. You know, that this is a thing that can, the change can keep happening and that that can be positive, that we need to 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 think about it as a way that we needed to adapt because 2030 Ireland and the island and Britain and the United Kingdom will be different to what it is now. It will be in 2040, it will be in 2080, that, you know, it'll, it will be in, you know, a hundred years time that we 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 move away from these sort of ideas that we can that there is something perfect out there that we can get to, but rather that we can create those, those rich and developed conversations and that we can be having them so that we can reflect what we as polities and a polity and as a, a community of groups living across various you know all the islands and within Europe can 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 be um, if we were our best selves. Thank you very much, Aoife, and, and, and thank you both for this really, really thoughtful contributions. just want to end the podcast by 
thank thanking you both for for taking the time, even Colin, to to share your reflections today. Really detailed thoughts that really builds upon the the extensive research that you've both already done on that. I'm really really grateful. I'm sure the audience will be as well for for hearing those thoughts and reflections and just say to keep keep up the wonderful work and just want to end by by wishing you both all the very best in your continuing work so thank you both again for joining us on the podcast today